So we are again um, here on the first Sunday of Advent, and we're also here probably the last day for a lot of the college students who are heading home, and so we'll be praying for you guys over your break. Um, But again, we're thankful that you're here this morning. Um, We're going to be going through a series um, beginning in Luke chapter 1. Uh, to cover the story of God entering into human history uh, as Jesus, right, in order to save and redeem, to suffer with his people. And um, what's interesting about the book of Luke is we don't know exactly how it all works, but um, uh, it seems that that Luke, who is a a Gentile doctor, um, there may even be a possibility that he was commissioned by this man named Theophilus, who also is a Gentile, Theophilus was investigating Christianity. It's possible that what he did was say, hey, Luke, I need you to go investigate the, the historicity of this whole story. And so Luke then goes out and he, he interviews all of these people to find out about the veracity and the truth and the historicity of all of these things. And one of the things you can imagine is that possibly as he goes out to do all this research, that he goes and even visits Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he sits down and tells and says, tell me. Uh, about your son. Tell me about the experience of raising him. Give me stories about his life. And so, so much of what we have here in Luke about uh, the story of Jesus probably comes from eyewitnesses um, to the story of Jesus. And so we're going to find ourselves today in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. But before we get there, let me sort of set the table a bit. For those of you who know much about the history or sort of the narrative arc of Scripture, you know that God created the world, and He created it to be good. He created Adam and Eve to walk with Him and to know Him, but there was a rebellion, and uh, the the result of that rebellion is that Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence. And not only that, um, but all of a sudden, all of these things that were supposed to be perfect and work well, uh, their physiology, um, their psychology, their relationships, all these things began breaking down. And in the midst of all of that breakdown, in the midst of all that chaos flooding into their lives, God gives a promise to them. And the promise that he gives to them is found in Genesis 3.15. We uh, theologians call it the proto-evangelium. And what it is essentially is a promise that uh, there's good news on the way. And the words of this generation 3.15 are this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, part of what God is saying to Satan is he's saying, I'm sending someone in who is my champion, who's going to defeat you, right? And in the process, you're going to wound him. And this is one of the very first um, announcements of Jesus. Not only that, but then later on throughout the Old Testament, there's reference after reference after reference to this coming Messiah, Isaiah 7.14, which many of you are familiar with. Uh, we see Isaiah says this, this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And so again, there's this promise of there's a savior coming, there's a redeemer coming. And what we find in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, is the fulfillment of that Redeemer, that Deliverer, that Savior. Before we jump in, let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to come into your presence this morning and to worship you. I thank you, Father, that we were able to come into your presence um, and to experience you not only as we um, sang, not only as we read responsively, Father, not only as we heard Scripture, but even as we... um, entered into conversations with fellow believers, Father. I pray, Father, that you would 
uh, not let us leave this place this morning without having encountered you, the living God. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I don't know um, how pregnancy announcements work these days. Um, It's been a little while since we had a pregnancy announcement to make. I'm pretty sure we just called our parents on the phone and progressively started telling people. Some of you know that uh, more and more there are creative pregnancy announcements. You guys maybe know about this. Well, uh, the other day I was reading a little article and I saw some examples of these creative pregnancy announcements and they had pictures along with them. And so let me show you a few of these creative pregnancy announcements. I I like this one. Thing one thing two, and thing three from Dr. Seuss. You get that, right? So you send this to your parents as an announcement that you're, you know, that you're going to have a third child, right? It's a, it's a creative pregnancy announcement. And if you don't recognize it, you need to read more Dr. Seuss. Next slide. Okay, if you're a Starbucks fan, daddy, mommy, big sister, and then I can't tell what the last one says because my eyes are too bad. But there's a little, again, there's something brewing. Something, there's somebody on the way. Next slide, right? I guess this is for the more administratively minded. Daddy paperclip, some kiddo paperclips, and then a mommy pregnant baby paperclip. Anyway, nice slide. This one, this superhero needs a sidekick. That's cute, right? So any of you who are, like, going to be pregnant anytime soon, you can use these ideas. This is my favorite one, maybe because I'm a child of the 80s. But here's the last one here. Ice, ice, baby, (laughs) right? I love that. Right, those are good announcements, yeah? If you're going to do it, you might as well go all the way with a vanilla ice reference. Anyway, so the the Bible is filled with all of these uh, pregnancy announcements, right? And we're going to read about one of them today when Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, oh, by the way, you don't know this yet, but you are about to give birth to the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. Let's jump in to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, um, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be. She's scared, but at the same time, she's a little bit apprehensive. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, time out really quickly. We just read a little while ago, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. What? Hold on. That was always confusing to me. Um, But there's an answer Later on in chapter 9, we also see that Isaiah says something similar, that his, he'll be called the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, etc., etc. These are, these are really sort of descriptions of, of who Jesus will be and the roles that he will serve in seeing the kingdom of God come. But his name would be called, his actual uh, given name would be Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. He'll be great and would be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? right. I actually kind of love this part. It makes me like Mary because the angel communicates this list of amazing truths. You've found favor with God, right? 
His name will be called Jesus, which equals salvation. He'll be the son of the most high. He'll be the king over Israel. His, king will, his kingdom will never end. Like all these great promises, right? That she could have focused on. And she's like, uh-huh, let's go back to the thing about me being pregnant again, right? <laughs> Tell me about that part, right? How's that gonna happen? And the angel answered her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was, also, was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. It's almost, it's almost like the angel is saying, I know this sounds unbelievable. So as proof to you that what I'm saying is true, you need to go visit Elizabeth and have a conversation with her because in her old age, she's six months pregnant. Go ask her. And Mary did. Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So really quickly, let's just jump in and see what we see in this passage. Again, maybe you've never read this before. Maybe you've read it a bunch of times, but we're gonna jump in and just see what we can find in this passage. We're not gonna cover everything, but just a few things. One, this is, um, this is a story about little, tiny, insignificant people and places, Right? Nazareth was this town of, at the time, less than 500 people. It was really sort of positioned between two other big cities, one of which was a Roman town and a Roman outpost. It's likely that Joseph would have gone there to work and Jesus would have gone with him. It was the kind of town where there was literally only one well, right? So everybody sort of would have come into contact with one another at this well. Chances are very, very good that Joseph and Mary would have known each other from the time they were little bitty. It's a little bit like when you're driving down to Pensacola, Florida, down Highway 27, and you stop in one of those little towns, right? And you're like, how do people live here? What do they do for work? And you run into the, you know, get, you get some gas and you run inside and you get a Dr. Pepper and you get some corn nuts. And like, it's still one of the places where you can't pay at the pump. You have to go inside and pay, right? It's one of the, those towns. Just any, any bitty little town, just boiled peanuts inside the gas station, right? And so that's, that's also essentially what this little town Nazareth is. It's nowhere, nothing. It's a city, bitty, tiny little town. It's why Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from that little nothing town? Not only that, but Joseph was kind of a little person, right? He was a, a carpenter. He was from the line of David. Um, when, when people got married in this age, they were betrothed. We'll get to that in a minute. But he was probably no more than 17, and more likely he was probably less than that. So he was really just a boy. And not only that, but he was probably very poor. In fact, we know that when he and Mary went to the temple to give their offering, they gave the offering that was reserved for the poorest people in Israel of these two turtle doves or or two pigeons. And so he was poor. He was just a boy. He and Mary were probably both illiterate. They were nobody, right? They were nothing from this little nothing town. Mary was really not that different, right? She was probably between the ages of 12 and 16. Usually betrothal started when the girl was 12 and the boy was a little bit older and it lasted for about a year. And so she was probably, again, just like any junior high girl that you might see at East Central or you might see at Darlington or you might see in this room, she was just a seventh or an eighth grader, right? When this angel comes and makes this life-changing pronouncement to her. And again, she too was probably illiterate. And again, as the text tells us, she was a virgin, right? And in the middle of all of this, this angel, this messenger from God comes and gives her this tremendous announcement from God. What does is, what is this story, this narrative tell us about God? Let's, let's start there. 
The first thing that we see in this, this story is that God initiates a relationship with us. That's just true. It's true with Mary. It's true with the disciples. It's true with the prophets, right? God initiates. He's always the one on the initiating end. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. In other words, the reason that this angel goes to visit Mary is because God sends the angel to her. God always initiates a relationship with us. I've told this story a few different times, um, but the way that Krista and I um, began dating was because, just to be very frank, I initiated a relationship with her. And you can ask her the details of the story um, to verify some of these, but I am pretty certain that she would say that uh, she was not looking for a relationship. She was pretty content at the time living the way she was living. But I saw her sitting across the lunchroom by herself where the, the athletes had to come to school a couple weeks early and kind of get ready for school. And, uh, and I thought it was my job to go around and welcome all the new people to Covenant College. Um, unbeknownst to me, there are people in the world, unbeknownst to me back then, there were people in the world called introverts who actually like sitting by themselves and like solitude. And so I went up and talked to Krista and began pursuing her. I found out it was her birthday before we were even really friends. And I put signs up around campus, happy birthday, Krista Keel at the time. And so I initiated and initiated and initiated this relationship with her until finally I wore her down. Anyway, <laughs> the, the point is God initiates a relationship with us, right? That's, that's just the way it works. And, and what's interesting is he initiates a relationship with us not because of our worth, but because of his grace. So that's the second point, that God initiates a relationship with us precisely because of his grace, not because of our worth, right? Verse 28 says this, and through 30, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, right? That that word favor is gonna be used twice, and it's the word charis, right? Which is the Greek word for grace. So greetings uh, to you who grace is being shown, and grace is always unmerited favor. You didn't do anything to earn it, You're just favored by God. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So unlike me initiating a relationship with Krista, because I really did initiate the relationship with Krista because of her worth. She was really pretty. You know, she played college soccer. She was also played college basketball. She was smart. She was all these things. They're all these things that merited my favor, right? But here we see God showing favor to someone, grace to someone, precisely or not at all because of their worth, right? That's the way grace always works. I've told this story before too, but when I was eight years old, we moved, my family moved from Greenville, South Carolina to a place called Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. It's very much in the country. It's exactly the way that it sounds. It's kind of like South Carolina's version of Nazareth. And uh, when we moved to the country, we had some land. We found out that there were some uh, neighbors up the hill who had a farm and some of their cats had had kittens. And I remember being just a little guy and driving up there in our van and pulling up to the barn and going inside. And there was a box full of this, you know, mama cat and these little baby kittens. And uh, I've told this story before, but my sister looked through, you know, these six or seven squiggly little baby cats, kittens. We we call them baby cats. Anyway, and um, (laughs) there was this really beautiful gray cat and Krista chose the really beautiful gray cat. And then there was the runt of the litter who was this sort of multicolored brown and black and tan, uh, little bitty, you know, runty thing. And I chose the little runty cat. 
And I remember on the way home, my sister gave me such a hard time about choosing uh, who came to be called Girl Kitty. And, um, <laughs> and I vividly remember this. I remember my, Christy was just berating me. She's three years older than me. What are you, anyway. And, uh, and I remember my mom asking, you know, well, Brian, why did you choose that little cat? And I said, well, I was afraid no one would pick her, right? And that's, um, I'm not saying that to make you go, ooh, and ah, BP's awesome. Although if you want to do that, it's okay. As much, really what I'm doing is to say that's, that's really what the picture of grace is, is that God doesn't choose us because we're worthy, right? He doesn't choose us because something wonderful, you know, he sees something wonderful in us. We are created in his image, therefore he does love us. We are worthy in that regard, but he doesn't choose Mary because of something particularly wonderful about her, right? Despite what somebody else might say. And he doesn't choose us because of something particularly wonderful in us. He chooses us because he chooses to show his grace and his mercy to us precisely when we don't deserve it. God initiates a relationship with us because of his grace. The last thing we see about God in this particular narrative is that nothing is impossible with him. Nothing's impossible with God, right? That's when this passage is usually preached, this is usually where they camp out a little bit. Verse 36 says this, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And so part of what we believe here at Seven Hills Fellowship is that nothing is impossible with God, right? We believe in miracles. We believe that, that things happened that you think couldn't happen, right? God created the earth out of nothing, God rescued Noah and his family from the flood. God rescued the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea in the process. God preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. In the passage just before this that we read this morning, we see God overcoming Elizabeth's barrenness in her old age. And in this passage, God enables Mary, a virgin, to become pregnant with the Son of God and the Savior of the world. It appears that doing the seemingly impossible has always been God's MO, and I think it still is. I think it's still the way he works. Some of you today need to hear this. You need to hear that God is still a God uh, who does things that seem to be impossible. You need to hear and believe that God can heal your heart, right? For those of you who have experienced hurt and brokenness and pain and suffering that frankly you should have never experienced, God can actually heal your heart. You need to hear and believe that God can restore your relationships. You need to hear and believe that he can redeem your hurting and your suffering, and he can actually make you more beautiful because of it. You need to hear and believe that God can rescue a wayward child or a spouse or a friend, for nothing is impossible with God, says Gabriel. So we see all those things about God. What do we see about Jesus in this passage? Let's take a look at that really quickly. The story has to tell us a few things about Jesus, one of which was that his mission, the reason he came, was salvation. Verse 31 says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Again, that name Jesus equals salvation, right? That's what it means. In fact, the Hebrew derivative that um, Jesus is taken from means to deliver or to rescue, and so when the angel said you're to name him Jesus, to call him Jesus, it's a reminder that he is to be a rescuer. He is to be a deliverer. He's to be a savior, right? And we see that that's exactly what Jesus did over and over and over again throughout the stories of the New Testament. Just look at the story of Zacchaeus. I'll just read this. It's not going to be up on the screen. 
when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, this is a chief tax collector, kind of a rebel at the time, hurry and come down. He'd climbed up in a tree to see Jesus. For today, I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. That is, Zacchaeus received Jesus. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The good news about the announcement of who Jesus is, is that he came to seek and to save people who are lost. And that's actually still true today, right? Jesus still enters into people's lives. He enters into their reality. He enters into their hearts and their minds in order to save them. So it's absolutely appropriate for you this morning and for me to call out to Jesus and to say, save me from myself, right? Save me from my own rebellion. Save me from my own tendency to turn my back on you. Save me from my own tendency to try to rescue myself, to make life meaningful for myself apart from you. Rescue me, save me. It's what he came to do. It's what he still does. What else do we see about Jesus? We see that this Jesus, this Messiah, this one that came to save would be God, right? And that may not sound shocking to you or to me. Maybe you grew up in a church, and so maybe you've been hearing this your whole life, but it definitely would have been shocking to them. And really, when you stop and think about it, it should be shocking to us as well. But here's what verse 32 and 33 say. He'll be great and be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. He's the Son of the Most High. Isaiah 7 makes it clear that the Messiah would be no mere man, but rather he would be Emmanuel, God with us, God with us. Isaiah confirms that same truth again in chapter 9, calling Jesus or saying about him, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? The message is the same over and over again, that God is entering into humanity in the flesh of a human being. When Jesus appeared to Thomas, he exclaimed what? My Lord and my God, right? John the Apostle, who probably wrote the oldest or the, the latest version of one of the accounts of Jesus' life, uh, was a pastor. And one of the primary things he was communicating in the book of John is that Jesus wasn't just a good guy. He wasn't just a prophet, right? He wasn't just an amazing pers- person, but he was the word who was God. This means, again, that God entered into humanity in order to save us and also to experience our humanity with us, right? So Jesus came to save. Jesus was God. And then an interesting thing that it points out is that Jesus' kingdom will have no end. Now let me read this really quickly. Again, this is back to 33 and 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, some of us hear this really quickly and we're like, "Eh, I don't know, we live in America. (laughs) You know what I mean? Where right now, just to be very frank, secularism is sort of winning the day. And, uh, and we see, obviously, that broadly and culturally, more and more people are 
sort of saying there is no God, there is no transcendent reality. What's interesting is, what's really happening is that it's um, becoming polarized right now in America. But what's interesting is if you look at Pew Research from 2015, the research study shows that the, the Christian church is actually growing, right? And so what's interesting is that in 2015, there were 2.3 billion Christians alive at the time, more than any other religion. And, uh, and it's amazing. It's still growing. And even though it's dwindling in U.S. and in Europe, it's booming in Africa and in South America and in Asia. And so 2,000 years later, Jesus' kingdom is still going strong, right? That's good news. His kingdom hasn't ended yet, and it will have no end. Amen. Finally, what does this narrative, what does this story, what does this passage tell us about who we are, right? Who's God? Who's Jesus? Who are we? Well, one of the things that it tells us is that we all require grace. We've already talked about this, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, grace, charis, unmerited favor with God. Romans 3, 22 through 24 says this, this righteousness, which Really, this was the verse that transformed Luther's understanding of how it is we're made right with God. It's an alien righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's a righteousness that's given to us. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so no one's perfect, right? That's no surprise, really. Uh, We all need God's grace. Mary needed God's grace. John the Baptist needed God's grace. Peter, Paul, Moses, and you and me, none of us have done anything to merit God's favor. God doesn't love you because you're beautiful. Rather, he makes you beautiful because he loves you, right? That's the way it works. We all require God's grace. And then finally, what else does this tell us about ourselves? Well, part of what this narrative tells us about ourselves is that our response should actually be like Mary's. Verse 38 says this, and Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Ultimately, this is a story not about us, but it's a story about God, right? About the fact that he's a God who wants to rescue you, who wants to bring you back into a relationship with him because he is a good father, right? Again, this isn't a story as much about us, right? Or even about Mary. It's a story about Jesus. It's about who he is, right? That he is God, right? That he entered into humanity at the cellular level to experience everything that we experience. It's about who he is and what he came to do, but the story does leave us with a choice. We're left with a choice of what to do this Advent season, right? Because one choice is, and frankly, it's a choice that probably many of us make either intentionally or accidentally, is we can be dismissive, right? And so this Advent season, Christmas, we can sort of say, you know, Christmas is a wonderful piece of our cultural heritage, but it Look, come on, it's just a myth, right? It doesn't have any real impact on the way that we live our lives. Like that's actually a choice that many of us are faced with this season. Or we can actually grasp and deal with the truth of the incarnation 2,000 years ago in this little bitty nowhere place to little bitty nobody people, right? 
and we can live in the expectation of Christ's return. Advent and the story of Christmas actually does require a decision on your part, right? Advent and Christmas should require a decision on my part. And what I would pray is that this season, as we sing these songs, as we look at these candles, as we read these familiar scriptures, as we watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special, that we would respond and join with Mary in saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, even now that we would pray that, that we would pray that we are your servants and let it be to us according to your word, Father. Let us, let us live this life um, according to your word. Father, your word tells us who it is that you are, who it is that Jesus is, what he, it is he came to do, who we are. And so, Father, we're tempted to believe so many things um, from each direction. We're tempted to believe lies that we tell ourselves. We're tempted to believe lies that Satan tells us. Father, we're tempted to believe even the lies of the world. And Father, I pray that this season, um, that your word and your voice would drown out all of those other voices and that we would believe and that we would know that we are right with you because of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.